What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson, and here we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So historically, Miami has been thought of as a place for fun in the sun. Surges in popularity have occurred over decades as each generation passes through to enjoy a lifestyle the climate affords. Some winter in Miami, many retire there, and I can tell you lately, a lot of people are moving to Miami. I first visited Miami in the early 80s when my mom lived there for a short time, and other than it being an unfamiliar place, those visits were not particularly memorable. It wasn't until a few years later, maybe around 1987, 86, 87, my friend, the model John Eno, suggested we fly from New York to Miami and hit the Art Deco hotel strip along South Beach. John said he'd heard from insiders in the modeling world that the strip was an undercover destination among the supermodel set. That was the first of what became regular visits for the past 30 plus years. It was on one of those early South Beach trips in the 80s, way before the crowd showed up, I met my guest today. And I can tell you, Miami is so much more than fun in the sun, though it is still that too. So it's somewhat difficult to accurately define Craig Robbins. Various bios describe him as a real estate developer, CEO, and president of Dacra Development, an entrepreneur, art collector, and philanthropist. And all those things are true, but they don't quite tell the whole story. From South Beach to the Design District, it would not be an overstatement to say that no one of our generation has played a more influential role in defining, redefining, and shaping the culture in Miami than Craig Robbins. Craig is a visionary in the truest sense of the word. His unique vision is nothing short of brilliant. However, it was his unpretentious personal warmth and willingness to engage with this unknown restaurateur in the 80s that established our connection, one that has endured through his astronomical rise over the past four decades. I'm honored that Craig has taken the time to join me today. So with that, Craig Robbins, welcome to Corner Table Talk. What's up, man? It's great to be back with you, my friend. So good to see you, Craig. We kick things off here with our short order questions just to get us rolling. So tell me, Craig, what are you listening to, man? What's on your playlist? I generally like classical rock. That's what I gravitate to, but I also enjoy all music, especially jazz and that early Chicago blues. Okay. Chicago blues. How about morning beverage? What's the first thing that you drink in the morning? I only have herbal teas. Sometimes I'll have natural coconut water from our garden. I almost never drink caffeine. Maybe every few weeks I'll have a green tea. A green tea every two weeks when you splurge, huh? <laughs> flexitarian, plant-based, or other? What's flexitarian mean? You eat meat, fish sometimes. Oh, I try to have about half of my meals vegetarian or vegan, and the other half I have animal protein, and that includes breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Generally, I have a very healthy diet. Yeah. Okay. And not to get anybody mad at you, but how about your favorite Miami restaurant of the moment? Oh, boy. The Design District just got three restaurants with Michelin stars. One of them is the only restaurant in Miami that has two. And then four got the other category where they mention them. So... I really like to roam around the design district, but as I work here, <laughs> who has two? The uh, Taille oh, was the okay. only one in Miami that got two stars. Okay. Very nice to know. How about your favorite bike ride? Where would that be? I just did a bike ride in Basel and I was astonished at how the Swiss have made such a biker friendly environment. I suggest everyone go try it out and then advocate for their communities to replicate what the Swiss have done. <laughs> what, did you bring a bike with you? I borrowed a bike from a friend and there are these apps now and just went on a ride like at 
it guided me. I used a Garmin computer and I was just astonished about how it is, it's such a unique environment for biking. It's a beautiful place, but also it's one where I really felt safe. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that. I'm a little concerned riding around Miami, but I'm going to follow you around on some of those safer bike routes that you know about. How about an emerging artist, Craig? Anybody in your large Rolodex of artists that would be new to folks listening? There's an artist that we just acquired a work by that I saw in Basel named Bisa Butler. And I thought her work was extraordinary. It's B-I-Z or B-I-S-A. It might be B-I-S-A. Okay. Interesting name. All right. Last one of these. What are you reading? I just finished Tim Ferriss's Tools of Titans and really enjoyed it. Before that, Wanting, I thought was a very powerful book. And Breathe is also an interesting one. I read a lot of different things. I go from science to philosophy to history and love books about economics or so I read quite a bit. Do you finish one before you start another or like me, I might start one and pick up another depending on my mood. I sometimes I'll read more than one book simultaneously. And I did that for quite a while, but I've actually now more gravitated to focusing on one book at a time. It's very rare, but sometimes I will not finish a book because I'll, I'll just get into it and after reading. 50 pages or whatever, I'll realize it isn't right, but that's probably like one in 20, one in 50. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Let's jump in before we go too much further. How you doing? You look great. Thank you. I'm feeling well. I'm happy, enjoying life and also have my challenges like all of us. Sure. Sure. Of course. Craig, you exist at this really, at least from my impression, at this really highbrow intersection of art, culture, commerce, philanthropy, and design that has a multi-generational appeal. And as the much-loved Virgil Abloh, who we're going to talk about later on in the program, succinctly put it, in Miami, all roads lead to Craig. But while at the same time, there's this air of inclusivity around you, so before we get into your career as a native son in Miami, can you take us back to the Robbins household when you were growing up and just tell us, give us a little picture of what family life was like there. My parents were very down to earth. My dad is a successful businessman, very smart, was a great mentor. And my mom was always very nurturing and supportive and created a, like a good dynamic, healthy environment for us. I would say like differently than parenting today, they gave me an incredible amount of freedom and some would say today a lack of supervision, but created real boundaries. And that combination of feeling free and being able to do whatever I wanted, but also within boundaries and then observing them respectfully, that I would say defines my childhood and the guidance. It was fun. That's interesting. You say that we just had someone on the pro psychologist talking about mental health and how one of the challenges these days is that parents too often overstructure their kids' lives and don't leave them with enough time for discovery and play and intuition developing. And so to your point, within certain parameters, you were given that freedom and it's not a surprise that you ended up where you are. Yeah, my dad is really one of the true mentors in my life beyond just being a dad. And it was that incredible ability that he had to teach me and to guide me and to simultaneously allow me to do what I wanted to do. I look back on the early stages of my career and it's bizarre. I remember graduating from college and knowing that I wasn't ready to start a business. That's a weird thing to be thinking like. I should have gotten a job. And so I went to law school. And then when I was graduating from law school, I didn't know if I wanted to be an art dealer or if I wanted to go into real estate. And real estate seemed really boring and art seemed incredibly impractical, especially in Miami. I just got lucky. I met my second mentor, a man named Tony Goldman in South Beach. And he had a couple properties and I was looking for an art studio. He sold me a 50% interest in them. 
and I was in business. I became a developer while studying for the Florida bar. And you answered my next question, but I want to ask it anyway. I know that you went to law school and I was curious where you changed paths. So as a young person, was law what you were determined to get into, or was it really just a thing that you knew that you probably could do, but maybe not what your heart and soul was? There is a tradition with friends around the family that a lot of people had gone to law school, whether they intended to practice law or just as a stage of education. So that was in my mind. And I was also early on, I really liked in high school, public speaking and writing. I was always naturally good at math and I wasn't a good writer, but I really applied myself to writing. And so I did that through college. Probably the most important thing that I did in college was I spent a year living in Spain and that's where I discovered art and design. First being in Madrid and going to the Prado Museum and seeing Goya's works. That's what got me hooked on art. And then living for two semesters of college after being in Madrid over the summer and studying Spanish, I met a lot of artists. I was influenced by artists also like, uh, Dali. Miro, Picasso's early influence in Barcelona, Gaudi, the fact that it was a city that had really interesting urban design. It was like a different place, so radically different from Miami, but it opened my mind and got me interested in creativity. I didn't know where all that was going to take me. I was in college. And so I resolved it by, by going to law school. Yeah, that's interesting. We spent some time, my wife and I, in Barcelona, and uh, I've also been to Madrid. But like you, I was taken by the urban squares and the kind of planned, but unplanned. You just roam the streets and you end up in all of these great places. And it, it's almost like it's programmed, but it doesn't feel programmed. And, and the buildings, the architecture, it was just, I'm from New York. I've been around a little bit of architecture, but stuff that old was just new to me at that time. And that's another thing you're touching on. Being an American, we think we're the center of the universe. And living in a city, like in Miami, their earliest structure is from the 20s, the 1920s. And living in neighborhoods that are hundreds of years old and experiencing cultures that are so radically different, even though we're all humans and we overlap in a lot of ways, it really opened my eyes to being more a citizen of the world and that there's lots of different cultures and people. I also learned Spanish, which was fantastic and a big influence on me. So all of that kind of got me ready. And I was always going back and forth between my interest and creativity at that point, and also like wanting to go into business and do something that would, would make sense economically. Yeah. It's funny, man, that the first time that I went to Europe, I think I only shopped at very early Banana Republic on the Upper West Side. They had opened the store. So it was just, it was like button down shirts and khakis, nothing else. And I never felt so just corny, really, when I was walking the streets in Paris and seeing how people dress. I was just in this basic uniform. And uh, but like you said, it just opens your eyes to music, culture, travel, just does that. So you mentioned Tony Goldman and it was, as I mentioned, it was the mid eighties that I visited South beach with my buddy, John. I remember the strip along ocean was pretty dead. It was quiet. I remember walking there at night. There was just no one, but these beautiful old structures, these beautiful hotels. And John at the time was friends with the supermodels of the day, Christy Turlington, Naomi, Cindy Crawford. And I think Bruce Weber was doing a photo shoot at the time when we were there. I believe when I met you, Craig, you had an office at the Marlin Hotel, if I remember correctly. And I think there was like this cool Jamaican restaurant on the ground floor. Does that sound familiar? So Chris Blackwell, the third real mentor in my business career, and I developed the Marlin together. I was living next door in the Webster. The Webster Hotel at the time we had transformed into kind of an infrastructure project to do fashion shoots in Miami. All of the big catalogs, the Otto Vassan catalogs were being produced at that time. Largely they were doing the winter shoots in Miami and the Webster was where you had the model agency, film processing lab, the ad agency, the production company, and of course my apartment. And next door, Chris and I developed the, the Marlin together. Naturally, we had a Jamaican restaurant on the first level. 
just above it was a world-class recording studio because Chris was the founder of Island Records. We had to have a recording studio. He naturally was not going to give me any edge at the Webster. So he put elite model management or we put elite model management. His apartment was in the Marlin and then we had 12 hotel rooms. And coincidentally, Naomi, Kate, and Christy Turlington all came along with you two to the opening of the Marlin. I think it was in like 1992. So we had this 12 room hotel and South beach was just on fire. That was all because of Chris. My talent was having him as a partner. <laughs> well, definitely good judgment. There was just a great piece on him in the New York Times in the last week or so. His history with Island and Bob Marley and his resorts and all that stuff, but always fascinated by him. What piqued your interest, Craig, in the preservation of the Art Deco strip? What gave you the idea that was something that could become what it ultimately became or a version of that? My father was in real estate, so I had some interest in real estate, but the traditional real estate didn't really interest me. At first, South Beach seemed like this incredibly beautiful place. It was also at the time counterintuitive. Most people, all the Miami business people thought it just needed to be knocked down and you should build the kind of unremarkable buildings that you see everywhere. And there were a group of preservationists and some community activists that fought to preserve the buildings and probably like a handful of developers, Tony, myself, a few other really smart guys in this case, all joined the preservation side. And I have to say, I got it at the beginning, but I didn't really get it totally until there was this one developer who owned a bunch of buildings and wanted to demolish the Senator Hotel across the street from the Marlin on 12th and Collins. And all the preservationists were going crazy. I was thinking to myself, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I was thinking like, these guys are crazy. These people own 10 buildings. They're doing a huge thing in South Beach and they need a parking lot. And the preservationists are being irrational. I remember watching as this was unfolding and the head of the preservation movement, Barbara Kappenman, lying down in front of the truck, the steamroller or whatever that was coming in to demolish the senator. And once that building was down, I was converted forever. I realized what horrible judgment it was to take one of these sacred historical structures that couldn't be replaced in order to create a parking lot. So from that moment on, I was a 100% preservationist. I always felt like the revitalization of South Beach was an interesting thing and it was a spectacular place and to figure out ways to adaptively reuse these historical buildings was good, but I also understood that once you tear one of those buildings down, you can never get it back. And there aren't many of those in the world. Right. That's the Joni Mitchell line. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And then interestingly enough, how that informed you going forward to the design district. But before we move on to that. I know that Dacra became the largest property owner. I believe that to be true in the Art Deco area, but there was a lot of property there. So you weren't able to really control the vibe. And ultimately, as I heard you explain this, investors, developers came in and played to the lowest common denominator, I think I've heard you say. Could you talk a little bit about that, Craig, and how that has played out in terms of what South Beach has become? It's still a great area. The buildings are still there, still beautiful, but you definitely took a different approach in the design district. So what happened in, in South Beach? Going back, you had the largest collection of Art Deco and Mediterranean Revival buildings in the world. They were right on the beachfront. They were in the center of Miami. And it was valueless. It was like nobody felt that there was any value there. That was an incredible opportunity. And then doing things like the Webster, where we collaborated with these brilliant guys in the business and bringing all these photo shoots. So all of a sudden you had Art Deco buildings and beautiful models from around the world. On every block, you'd see people taking photos of them. And of course, they would also be hanging out in the neighborhood. Then taking it even a step further, when Chris came in and we did the collaborations with Chris, and now you've got world-class recording studios, movies were being made in Miami, 
you'd walk down the street, you'd see Calvin Klein or Johnny Versace, or you'd see these young, beautiful models, or maybe you'd see Klaus Oldenburg or Roy Lichtenstein. It wasn't a place of masses or a big tourist place. It was a place for creative people. That was amazing and inspiring. But what happened was there were a lot of people that wanted to exploit that, find the lowest common denominator, do a trashy bar or whatever, and be able to make fast money. Because a lot of times you can make fast money easier than you can build a brand. Of course, the ones that think long-term very often do a lot better if they've got real vision. And we were by far the largest property holder in the historical district. We own blocks of Ocean, Collins, Washington, the main streets there, a big chunk of Espinola Way, Lincoln Road, south of Fifth Street. We had a lot more property than any other individual, but it was like 5% of the neighborhood. So I saw how that excitement just got exploited and over time brought the area down. And there's still a lot of great things that have happened in Miami Beach. So you look at properties like the Faina and now the Amman Hotel is going to be built. It's still an interesting place, but it frustrated me. The design district was another historical neighborhood right over the bridge. It was much smaller. And so we were able to go in and quietly buy up a lot of property there and have control of the neighborhood. There are other people who've come and made contributions here. We only own 70% of it. We don't own 100%, but it's also not Disney World. It's a real place. And the fact that there are other personalities here make it interesting. I had realized like in South Beach that I didn't want to be in a situation like that again, where people that weren't like-minded could actually bring it to a lesser place. And so that's what inspired me to work in the design district. Yeah, really interesting, man. I moved to uh, to LA in 89 and we opened a restaurant on Melrose Avenue in 93. And at that time, Craig, in the couple of years prior to that, Melrose, you've spent time in LA, but Melrose was like a cool strip from Fred Siegel East. It was a cool place to go on Saturday and people shopping. And around the time that we opened Georgia, Spike Lee had opened a shop across the street. There was a cool jazz club down the street, but the atmosphere in the neighborhood started to change as landlords, and they were all different property owners, to your point about not controlling the vibe, started leasing to tattoo parlors and t-shirt shops. And I don't think Melrose has recovered yet. In a different way, something similar happened on Abbott Kinney in Venice when GQ came out a few years ago, coolest street in America. And a couple of years ago, Howl's, one of the premier restaurants in Los Angeles, and one of my favorite places of all time on Abikini, left Abikini because of a rent hike and Converse moved a sneaker shop in there. It's the character of the neighborhood, man, is just really starting to dissipate. And so turning to what you've done in the design district, I know you've described this a million times. I listened to a brilliant lecture that you gave to the School of Architecture, USC. It's a case study if you have the resources and the vision, but now you have the playbook because Craig Robbins has created it. But what you did there, man, and how methodically you approached that, the result now is proof of it. But talk about that a little bit, Craig. I know it was a historic district and then before that, a pineapple farm, but what told you that people would care about any plot of land like that off the beach. And how did you do that? I think first I was very influenced by the idea of a neighborhood and working in South Beach. I also met Andres Duani and Liz Platter-Zyberg, the founders of the New Urbanist Movement, and their idea about pedestrian-friendly places that have centers as opposed to like suburban sprawl. And that thinking was very influential on me. Also, I was a member of, I was very young, the youngest person ever, but I was a member of Miami's public arts program. I got exposure very early to the value of public art, which I've translated to art, architecture, and design, but it's, it was inspired by that. So I had these kinds of, these like roots. And I also think that you can go for the quickest cash flow or you can make sure you've got enough cash flow that you're making money, but invest in your brand 
or invest in the place, invest in the experience. I, in South Beach early on, a very good friend of mine who is a smart businessman and a more traditional businessman, very brilliant guy. He said, Craig, you've got all these tenants and none of them have credit. So I rented in the middle of South Beach because I was listening to him to pay less shoes, which was a really nice business. And of course it was guaranteed I was going to get the rent, but it like ruined the whole area. No one wanted to be around them and it, it killed the vibe. And so I learned early on that you can do these things, take maybe a little bit more risk, think a little bit more longer term, but then the multiple return is bigger. And there's two philosophies in real estate. The more traditional one is you buy a plot of land and then you try to build what is the highest and best use, meaning what's going to get you the most return. And it's not that you have a negative attitude towards the community around you, but you disregard it. Your priority is to make the most money out of your land. Whereas if you're buying many properties in a neighborhood, your goal is different. Each thing you do with each one of those properties, if it makes the whole neighborhood worth more, you're getting a much bigger return. If every building's value goes up and one building increases the value of 20 buildings, then that building can be profitable, maybe not as profitable as the quote, highest and best use. But if it makes everything else worth more, then you're making much more money you could ever make out of that one property. And so that's been our philosophy from the beginning. And it, it amalgamated into combining the art, architecture, and design to create a sense of place, these pedestrian-friendly neighborhoods, bringing in other businesses to do things, but also managing the content and doing things ourselves and making it a combination of collaboration. A very early vision for the design district was collaborating with Art Basel, helping bring Art Basel to Miami, but then making the design district a venue for Art Basel and helping to enhance what Art Basel meant in people's minds, but also really making the design district defined as a very special and unique place. I would say that because from the beginning, we always had sound business principles and we were always making money out of the asset. And then we were reinvesting that money into long-term thinking, like doing cultural events with Art Basel, eventually founding Design Miami, bringing in different kinds of businesses, going against the grain. Part of what I've always done has been contrarian and not for the purpose of being contrarian, but seeing things that are silly in the world and not going with what the majority is thinking. We spoke about South Beach. Most people thought South Beach should be torn down. I thought having the largest collection of Art Deco Mediterranean Revival buildings in the world, that was worth more than tearing them down and whatever you could build on them. In the design district at the beginning, it was crazy. All over the United States, furniture design showrooms were in these fortress-like malls. And you weren't allowed to walk in them if you weren't with a licensed decorator. Literally, like looking at design was treated like prescription medicine. If you don't have a design doctor, it could hurt you. That just was ridiculous. It was like hidden. People didn't have access to it. It wasn't marketed. It was marketed to a tiny percentage of decorators and they would let their clients in. Historically, the design district had been a place with furniture showrooms. So the first thing we did was we just brought them back, but we put them on the street and we said that everybody should be able to walk in. And of course that made design so much better and so much more interesting, but there was a whole universe that was against it. There were also people who thought it was crazy. Like they thought South beach is working, but the city of Miami is a disaster. And going over the bridge, like this guy got lucky in South Beach, and now he's going to lose everything in the city of Miami. Whereas, no, I thought that you could take the ingredients that were here and do something nice. So by bringing back the furniture, getting cash flow, then reinvesting it into culture, into Art Basel, and then founding Design Miami, and of course, with that commissioning people like Zaha Hadid to do an installation and Mark Newson to do the fence that exists in front of the public high school dash, doing those things created buzz and excitement in the neighborhood. And 
time was on our side because when you're not overburdened by debt, because you're making enough cash flow to meet all your obligations and you're making extra profits and you reinvest that kind of profit into the future of making the neighborhood a better place, all of that just continues to spur growth. I'd say the biggest thing after that was we were doing all these activations and we had founded this design collecting show, Design Miami, and all the fashion brands were coming. And all of a sudden the light went off. My God, if we could add in this arty neighborhood fashion, like the luxury brands, then you combine it with design, you combine it with art, you combine it with these restaurants, that would catapult this into a completely different category. But also, no, we're not going to do a mall. We're not going to market the place as a place to come shop. We're going to market the place as a place to come see art and design. And we're going to do it in a different way. What that did was it inspired the fashion brands to want to do things that were on brand for the neighborhood. They did these beautiful flagship stores. They competed with us in a positive sense to outdo our architecture, outdo our design. And it really created this, like this sense of place that's different. And what you said before is so important about this. When you control a lot of the neighborhood and you're thinking is how am I going to make the neighborhood a better place? You don't kick out the great restaurant because Converse is going to give you more rent. We can take a percentage of our space and get 25% of the rent that Hermes will pay us. We've got brands like Chanel, Hermes, Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior. And of course they're in a position where they can pay a certain amount of rent, but who wants to go there if you can't go to a great restaurant? And okay, we take, we make a little less profit from these spaces because we're thinking about how are we gonna make the neighborhood a better place, still profitable. And we've got these amazing food and beverage people that are doing these restaurants and it's a tiny area. Seven restaurants here got recognized by Michelin. That's more than in Miami Beach. It's definitely the largest single area that got recognized by that Michelin process, which was an incredible validation of what we're doing. Like it, it just made me feel good because it, it showed that investing this way and thinking long-term and caring about people's experience. One of the most important things to me is that while there is all this luxury here in the design district. It's not just for luxury shoppers. It's a place that's for everybody. Yeah. You can go into two world-class museums for free. You can get ice cream, you can get coffee. You can walk around in an outdoor museum of art, architecture, and design. At the same time, you can go shop in one of these fancy stores. Craig, so much occurs to me again, having spent the last 30 years in LA, my natural analogies are taking me back to LA, but I'm thinking of Culver City. And in an effort to revitalize Culver City, everything became a restaurant and that was it. And there was no other reason to go there other than to bounce around. So one restaurant competed against the other, competed against the other, competed against the other. Whereas what you did in the design district is you really made art and culture the centerpiece and restaurants and the stores became you know, add-ons and the icing on the cake, but the experience was going there and walking around every 50 feet or so. You've got this beautiful installation. You mentioned accessibility. I know you've got public parking. When we had lunch, I parked over by where I needed to get my glasses and it cost me all of three bucks, man. And the parking structures hit. It's got design <laughs> on the exterior, the parking structures. Damn, Craig thought of everything. But let me bounce through a few quotes that I pulled of yours from the USC lecture. Again, anybody that's listening, Craig has given you the Reader's Digest version of how methodical he was about the creation of the design district. But I would tell anyone that's interested, go to YouTube, pull it up. Craig Robbins, USC lecture from November of last year. It's just fascinating. Anyway, let me bounce through a few of these. These were some of your quotes that just really stuck with me. The power that creativity can have as a place builder. You said, we wanted the design district to be equally about culture as it was a place to do business. There was already a grid there. We studied the grid, the urban design going back to Barcelona and Madrid and some of those places, maybe that's where the inspiration came from. But we wanted to create a place that was pedestrian friendly, 
not all about cars, a place to hang out, a place for walking. And you said the neighborhood is a world-class outdoor museum of art, architecture, and design. It's an environment, one that reveres creativity. And what happened was because we were making this an amazing place, a lot of the world's most important luxury brands invested there and they built these amazing stores. They went above and beyond what they would normally do because they recognized the value that you were creating there. And the last thing I'll say, or quote I'll pull from you is we make it about investing in culture. And what that did was it made us unique and special. So it made the partners that are coming there not just see the neighborhood as another transaction, another store. They saw it as an opportunity to express themselves differently. By getting out of their comfort zone and invest more, they contributed to making the design district an unusual place. So those were some random quotes, Craig, that I pulled, but man, just what a story. Thank you. Yeah. Well done, man. Really well done. Just briefly, Craig, cause it's such a big deal. Now, how did Art Basel come to be? I know you talked about going to furniture fairs in Milan, I think a few years in a row. And the idea is just coalesce, combining the sexiness of Miami and art and furniture design. But talk a little bit about that. How did that come to be? Obviously there are lots of factors and I'm a spoke in the wheel. I'm not the whole wheel. I wasn't for Art Basel, but I, because I was in the furniture business in a sense, making the design district a place for furniture showrooms, I was going to this trade show in Milan called Salone every year. I was blown away by, for that one week, how Milan was all about design. It was like celebrating culture. Everywhere you went, there was an installation, an exhibition, a party, a whole city was dedicated that week to celebrating culture. And I was also an art collector. I was going to Art Basel every year. Art Basel was this unbelievable, by far the only art fair in the world, like the best art fair. And it was super serious and honestly boring. You'd get there, you'd go to the art fair, do your business, go to one of the good Basel restaurants at night. The next day you'd go to the Byler Museum, see their incredible show and you'd leave. So as an art collector, it was great, but socially it was not much. And the third thing that really inspired me was I was very frustrated because everybody thought of Miami as just a fun in the sun party place. That annoyed me personally. I wanted my community, our community to be acknowledged more as a place of substance and for me, cultural substance. So it all came together when I met Sam Keller, who was the then director of Art Basel and we started talking, other people have been talking about maybe bringing Art Basel to Miami. I became a huge advocate of that. A close friend of mine, Norman Brayman, and I made sure that they secured the rights to come here because initially it was impossible for them to even get permission from the convention center to come to Miami Beach because there was another art fair and there were rules that you wouldn't. The other art fair was fine, but it was nothing. It wasn't Art Basel. Sam and I formed a partnership where he agreed that we would also inspire people all around Miami to celebrate art and culture that week. And specifically, they would exclusively market the design district under the brand Art Loves Design. That was a transformative moment for me. As I say, I was like a part of it, but it really had a huge impact on Miami because Miami immediately became known also as an art city, as a cultural city not just a place to come and party, but what an incredible combination, this sexy, fun, beautiful environment where you can enjoy culture. That was the vision that collectively a group of us had, and we all helped make it happen. And rest is history. I, I would say. So. Craig, we're hopefully coming out of COVID. It's interesting having spent time here the last couple of years and keeping an eye on LA and keeping an eye on New York, how Miami, Florida, I guess as a whole, more specifically Miami handled the business angle of what stays open, how to let people continue to do commerce, but trying also to keep people safe. And your numbers in the design district have just been fantastic. I know when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you said it's just incredible. 
There's an energy, man, that I'm picking up on here. It's not hard to spot articles in the paper every day about who's moving here from California, from New York, whatever. You got Franklin Sermons at uh, the Perez, one of the coolest guys in the art world. I know you're a big donor and supporter of theirs, but just talk a little bit, if you will, man, about the momentum that I'm not imagining that there's something happening here. I think that Franklin is a great example. I'm on board of Pam and served on the selection committee. But when we were able to get someone of Franklin's talent and stature to relocate and become the director of PAM, that was exemplary of how our community was progressing because I knew who was who and I understood who Franklin was. It was a real coup. And Franklin is one of many examples of extraordinary people who've come and made this their home and are also making a huge contribution to the community. COVID brought about this like extra kind of push. I would say what it did was it accelerated things because when all of a sudden everyone's routine gets disrupted, things that are going to happen anyway can be pushed to happen a lot faster because all the barriers that would slow them down are out of the way. You had this like weird thing. I'm not trying to be political. And actually, I think all the leadership was wrong. Staying open was brilliant, but telling people not to wear masks, not to get vaccinated was ridiculous. This idea where Miami stayed open and at least the people in the community, a lot of them really took serious precautions and wore masks. And when it was available, got vaccinated. It made this place like an oasis and everybody had a lot of free time. So a lot of people discovered it and it accelerated the migration of just extraordinary people to our community and catapulted it to where now we, our problems are, we need more housing. Like we, we've got very good problems to have, right? Your goal is not to have way too much housing because everyone's leaving. You want to have not enough housing and then figure out how to make it livable for people. So yeah, it's been transformative and the quality of people that have migrated here and the quantity is leading to amazing things. Ken Griffith, just as one example, moved here himself and was going to move his executive team. Now he's decided he's moving his whole company. From Chicago? Yeah. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. I love the fact that a lot of the young tech world has really come here and established itself. It's, it certainly continues to be a creative place. So it's a really exciting time for Miami. I've always said that Miami is a city of the future. It's a place that it doesn't have a lot of the assets that some of the great older cities have, but it doesn't have also the burdens that come with it. So we're really in a position to have a big impact on our time and I'm excited to be part of it. Yeah, man. I hear you. I also watched a conversation with you, Virgil, the late Virgil Abloh, and uh, Amy Astley from Architectural Digest that was taped in December of 2020. What I saw, man, was, it was two kindred spirits, you and Virgil. And of course, he would tragically pass at 41 after a two-year battle with a rare form of cancer in less than a year after that conversation that you had with him. I mean, his stature and what he was able to accomplish at 41 was just amazing and so much life left to be lived. He also opened his first off-white boutique with you in the design district. He said at the time, to me, it's an art piece, not just simply a boutique. And Craig, I have to say, man, while I was watching him speak, you were in a corner box. It was a Zoom call. You were smiling at him almost like a proud father. And he was just was such a reflection of so many of the things that I've read about you and heard you speak of in terms of art and its importance and its place. Do you mind sharing a little bit about Virgil and his impact and your relationship? So Virgil and I met first in about 2017. So not that long ago, but at a point where he was in his career was much different. Like he had this meteoric rise and he wanted to the following year spin 
in the design district during Art Basel and asked if I would give him a space. I said yes. And we began to get to know each other and became friends. He was just one of the most powerful, understated, thoughtful people I've ever met. There are these rare people who are in that position, but they'll always give more than they'll take. So with Virgil, we did that. The next year we did a thing called social studies where a group of shops opened and he ran a sort of clinic where he brought kids in and they could print t-shirts with him. He then became the head of Louis Vuitton, the men's director of Louis Vuitton. I remember going to that first show with him, having dinner after, and it was just so glorious, out of character to see, be there sitting and watching Virgil Abloh become the, the director of one of the biggest fashion brand in the world in Paris and how people were so motivated by it. He would touch different things. We have a, one of his sculptures in the neighborhood. He did the off-white store with us, did the Louis Vuitton men's store, massive installations. It was even like, it was emotionally very shocking. I knew that he was sick, but when he died, it was not expected at all. It was a very sudden thing. And there was so much planned last December around him. He was doing his men's show here. There were big installations of his sculptures all over the neighborhood. And true to, to Virgil, it all became an homage. It was sad, but it was uplifting. You know, the power that he brought onto the planet. And I always say, obviously we all want to live as long as we can, but Virgil did more in 40 years than 10 of us do in 500 years. And he really impacted the planet. I think he changed the way that we think, even the way we think about creativity. He was a very special guy and I was just honored to be his friend. Like I, I enjoyed him. I have some friendships like that and he made a big contribution and we were integral in each other's lives. Like we helped each other in things along the way. I've got some beautiful design pieces that he did with Creo that was one of the galleries in Design Miami. Special guy. We will all miss him. It was very sad, but also inspiring because that week was more about life than it was about death. It was celebrating Virgil's life. That's beautiful. And having spent, as I mentioned, the last 30 years in LA, I couldn't help but think about Kobe Bryant's passage just the year before in 2019 at 42, Virgil at 41. And as you were just alluding to Craig, both having accomplished so much, you know, in their 41 and 42 years respectively, yet there was so much left to do, so much life that would have been left to live. But in an effort to process the loss, Kobe's fans around the world started painting these murals of him, both to process and celebrate him at the same time. And this makes me think about art's ability to help us move from one place to another, even if at the time we're not conscious that it's having that effect on us, that we're, that's how we're processing the loss and celebrating. What, or do you have those thoughts or any thoughts about that? I always say that for me, art is a frontier from which mankind advances. I really believe that. I think that the great art is the ones that change how we think, that make us see the world differently. And whether it's conscious or unconscious, it doesn't matter. Because that art is created, we're all different and we're moving forward. And that's what people like Virgil offer to the world. As we know, we're all humans. We're all gonna live and we're gonna die. The universe has been around for 10 billion years and we might get a hundred and there's not really that much of a difference between 50 and a hundred or 40 and 80. When it's personal, there's a big difference. Or when it's someone that's close to you, it's more about what you do in your life. And the creative people, the ones that are opening our minds and helping us think differently and helping us advance and become better people, whether they do it in a short period of time or they do it in a long period of time, it doesn't matter. It's more a question of how much they do. Right. And whether they do it with a trumpet, a paintbrush, or by creating wonderful places that we get to go and enjoy, it, it does move our culture forward. 
So winding down here, Craig, just a couple of more things. Long before diversity and inclusion became a buzzy phrase, you were that guy who just seemed naturally inclined. You were just cool that way. And again, it's not like you and I are best of friends, but not once in all the years that I've known you has a call gone unreturned and either someone, you or someone from your office was there to assist me whenever I would reach out. I look at the world you've created and the palette of cultures and artists and individuals you support. And man, it's everyone. Maya Angelou has a quote. And she says, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Do you see yourself in that quote at all, Craig? It's very flattering to be considered that way, but I just am who I am. I do what I do naturally. So it's strange. When we did this project, Aqua in Miami Beach, Half of the architects, we had 10 architects working on it. Half were women. And you know, there aren't a lot of female architects. Females are a smaller percentage if you take the total architectural firms in the world. And so I just naturally gravitate towards being this way. It's always a little different when you meet someone who is somehow of a type that you haven't met before. At first, you could feel a little strange or a little bit because it's new and you have to process it. But people are people and all these barriers that somehow our minds construct to, to separate us from people. I'm sure I have that in me, but I just, I think I'm very blessed to be less victimized by that than others. And it's nice that you see it as something positive, but I see it as I'm lucky because I get to meet great people and I don't have as many filters that are weeding out interesting quality people as other people. What you've created is a reflection of that, man. So we're all the beneficiaries. Lastly, before I let you go, I see that Jimmy Butler of the Miami Heat has a pop-up coffee spot in the design district. Now, I know you don't drink coffee, but what are you hearing? How's this coffee, man? You heard anything? One of our sons... Harrison was just hawking me because he's really brilliant with food and about how Jimmy has this incredible coffee. And that's what we do when we hear that there are people that are impacting the world in an extraordinary way, we do our best to collaborate with them. And all these things that we've been talking about really, from my point of view, they've been opportunities to collaborate with brilliant people and getting Jimmy to come here and do his thing and making this a place that demonstrates that we're lucky that we're associated with it. That's the way I see it. Everybody loves his coffee. Yeah. I saw a photo of him dipping under the doorway and walking in there the other morning. So he's there to support Craig Robbins, man. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to seeing you in Miami, man, where whenever I'm there. Thanks again, man. Likewise, this has been absolutely delightful. Oh. Great just hanging out with you. Thanks, Chris.